Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a good new buddy of mine, a legend, a Canadian rock icon that I would put on the level of of Neil Peart, George Samoleski of the band Propagandi. That's right, George's on the show. More on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can send me an email. Uh, you can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you use Facebook, there is a Facebook page run by this show's producer and my little brother, Tristan Abraham, the guy who's been really keeping this show on track in some shape or form in the past few weeks. So thank you very much to Tristan for that and for everything, uh, especially this episode. This is really him who ran this episode down and dragged this down and made this happen with George. So send him a message over there at facebook.com. There's a Turned Out of Punk Facebook page there. I think it's facebook.com slash Turned Out of Punk, I believe. And if you don't use Facebook, like myself, you can find all that stuff over there on Tumblr as well. All the stuff, I mean, the stuff that gets sent into the show. Flyers, uh, other cool photos. We post it on the Tumblr. So, you know, you go to uh, turnoutapunk.tumblr.com and you can see that stuff over there. Speaking of supporting the show, if you would like to support this show, the best way to do so is by going over to iTunes and writing a review and rating this thing and subscribing to this thing. And if you don't use iTunes, just tell people. And if you do use iTunes, just tell people. Tell your friends. And I cannot mention support and this show without mentioning the good people over there at Vans. Van Shoes has come on board and has supported this podcast. They've flown me out to some of their events. I've gotten to interview some great artists, got to make some new friends. You know, how many sponsors uh, of podcasts ultimately make their hosts friends? I've got to make, make a lot of friends through uh, this Vans uh, sponsorship of the podcast. But best of all, they just want to support this show. I don't have to book any guests they want me to book. They've been really understanding about the schedule as of late. So thank you very much to the fine people at Vans for making this thing possible and for uh, not imposing anything upon me uh, beyond that. Um, so everyone, thank you for supporting this show also as well. Thank you for staying staying in here through this thick and thin. Uh, right now, I guess I can reveal it all. I'm working on a show called The Wrestlers for Vice. I've been working on it since like last April. You have followed along diligently if you're a regular listener, I'm sure, and uh, have heard that I've been traveling a lot, traveling all over the place, because we're making a show about wrestling all over the world. I can't wait for you to see it. There's a lot of cool stuff in this thing. Just about finished. Got a couple more shoots to do, and then we're done. And then it's just back to me focused on you, the podcast listener. And making sure that this show is there promptly every week. I know now it doesn't seem like it's going to ever be back on schedule. But I promise you, very soon it will be back on schedule. So this week, uh, I also have to say thank you, uh, especially to two people, actually, for uh, sending me some great gifts. I got to say thank you very much to my buddy Sean Youngblood over there at Youngblood Records. Now... If you don't know Youngblood Records, you are denying yourself some incredible classics of hardcore from the last 20-some-odd years, from Life's Halt to Mind Racer to Iron Age to 
the be- uh, standoff behind the wire seven inch that I got, which is fucking awesome. I didn't know this band before. Also got DC Disorder, uh, Naive to a World, which is amazing as well. He also throws in great labels as well, which is always great to add to my collection. So thank you very much, Sean, for sending those. And also, friend of the show, my buddy, your buddy, everybody's buddy. Dave Martin. Dave Martin has sent in uh, a, a bunch of LPs to me. Uh, I'm going to go through them slowly, but uh, the Modulators are this incredible New Jersey power pop band that I did not know about at all. Now I've got to try and track down these originals. But the great thing is, uh, because of the fine folks over there at Manufactured Recordings, you don't have to spend all that money tracking them down like some sort of sicko like myself. You can just go out there and pick up this handy LP. Uh, So thank you very much, Dave, for sending this along. And also, another record that if you're a sicko like myself, you've probably gone out and tracked down a bunch of the reissues or a bunch of the originals. But if you haven't ever heard of this band, the Cleaners from Venus are one of the great unheralded bands from the 80s. Uh, They have put out a bunch of stuff, and now, because of the fine folks that captured tracks, thanks again, Dave, for sending me this stuff, Uh, there's this handy limited edition, uh, you know, one one LP with all these songs on it, all the hits, so you can pick that up. So thank you very much, Sean and Youngblood and Dave Martin. And of course, if you want to send me records, I would love to get records, so uh, send them away. You just, I guess, uh, I gotta get that post PO box set up, but uh, I will. <laughs> I've been promising to do that for so long. <laughs> oh God! Uh, when I had time, I feel like I really just wasted it. You know, I just was wasting so much time before, and people would be like, "No, you had kids," you know, like, "No, I had free time back then, and I didn't use it, and now I don't have any." And, uh, yeah, that's the position I'm in these days. So I've got all these records, barely any time to listen to them, uh, and uh, all these great podcasts to give you and barely any time to do them. So let's get on to today's show. Today on the show, George from Propagandi. George is someone that I've always wanted to meet. He's almost like a a mythical figure to me. I've met Todd and I've met Chris, uh, you know, and other Propagandi members over the years. But George was someone I never got to meet. And so to finally get a chance to sit down and have a a brief uh, but amazing little conversation with him was a great opportunity. Thank you again to my brother, Tristan Abraham, for chasing this down and making this happen. And uh, yeah, I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and enjoy this thing because uh, I've got to get back to work, (laughs) which sounds crazy because it's super late. Uh, or early, depending on when you're listening to it. But but it, regardless, it's not a time that you want to be getting back to work. But I got to get back to work. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Jord Semoleski from the great Propagandi on Turned Out a Punk. This is a big thrill for me. Well, fuck, thanks for having me. Um, well, I, this is going to be awesome because as I was telling you off air, I've had, you know, Chris on the show and you guys' stories, I think more than anyone I've ever had, because I've had a lot of, you know, multiple members of bands on the show, mm-hmm. but more than anyone I've had on the show, I think you guys have the most sort of like similar trajectories, but I, it's going to be interesting to see the divergences and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm going to start this off the way I start them all off, which is... 
How'd you get in punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, growing up mid eighties, Portage Prairie, Manitoba, uh, out in the sticks. Um, I was introduced to music at a, at a young age. My mom was a piano teacher, Beatles, Fleetwood Mac records, all that kind of stuff. I was always, you know, uh, drawn to music. And uh, over the years, you know, start sprouting pubes and getting into metal, <laughs> you know, pretty hard. Uh, everybody was, uh, you know, the high school, it was all Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. So actually a guy who was at the show last night, he was the older brother of a friend of mine who drove a van into Winnipeg to go to uh, my first concert event was Iron Maiden when I was 13 on the Peace of Mind tour and yeah he, we met up with him last night it was hilarious that's awesome was he like was that who introduced you to metal was it just like proximity to it in high school yeah just you know that that was around that was the thing yeah. I mean you had a mullet and wore Iron Maiden <laughs> shirts or you were basically an outcast that's pretty Absolutely. much where it was at and uh, I met Chris through playing hockey uh I, maybe when we were 10 or 11 or 12, we went to different schools. Anyway, I knew him a little bit, mm -hmm. and then grade 10 rolled around. We're in the same high school, sharing a, a desk in science class. And when uh, we weren't getting booted out, we were sort of talking about, uh, you know, just musical interests, that kind of thing. And he was getting into underground metal at that point, sharing some stuff with me that I didn't know existed, you know, uh, Venom. Uh, Celtic Frost, that sort of stuff, and it it just seems so radically different from anything that I heard. It would just it was really uh, uh, I, I don't know. It just sparked my curiosity. He ended up moving to this to Winnipeg uh, at the end of that that year, and we stayed in touch. And you know, I was buying a drum kit and that kind of stuff, interested in getting into music and. Um, and we just started going to this record shop, uh, downtown Winnipeg, uh, Records on Wheels. And it was there, I was kind of getting into underground metal, and then I just kind of saw some some LPs, like, what the hell is this stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't look like it was metal at all. It was just more bizarre, you know? Uh, and uh, I saw a, a gig poster for a DOA show um, one of my visits to the record store and just okay jotted down the address and everything ended up uh, Do you know did you know who they were before that or just, no. just like three initials and you're like that yeah. was interesting Yeah, and this is at some You know a community hall in Point Douglas yeah. and you know uh, Got a ride in with a couple friends, you know, we we're 15 at the time. It was 1985 and uh, We decided what the hell, you know, we'll go to go to the show check it out and uh, that was the moment for me where I, you know, I said bye to Arena Rock pretty much. I just wasn't interested in it anymore after that night. Um, it just seemed like, you know, you pay your money to the door. It's just all volunteers, your people, you know, the DIY scene at yeah. the time working this show. Yeah. It was so packed in there. Um, it just seemed like everything was... Uh, so illegit about, about the show, you know, yeah. like, uh, no concern for public safety or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was just, um, 
completely off the hook. Who did personality crisis open, or did like do you remember who opened? Or yeah, it was uh, there was a band from Winnipeg called the Beach Mutants. Oh yeah, which actually great single. Yeah, yeah, I have that. Uh, I think they do a Who cover on I it. I think they do. Yeah, I was trying to remember. They do a cover on one of the, on the My flip. My generation, right? I think. Yeah, but the uh, <clears throat> one of the guys from Into the Music played in that band, and I was or not Into the Music. Sorry, uh, from uh, Records on Wheels. Okay. Uh, Into the Music was, was another that, local record shop. Was Records on Wheels a chain too? Yeah, I, I think it was owned out here. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it just seemed like, like, what the hell? There's this guy from this record store. He's up on stage. You're, you know, the arena rock thing, you're used to <laughs> Coney Hatch being the opening <laughs> band or somebody from Toronto yeah. or somewhere outside of Manitoba. Yeah. And this just seemed like, what the hell? This is a guy from the store down the street. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's kind of in this rough area of a rougher neighborhood. And, every, you know, there's people drinking in the parking lot, smashing bottles. Everybody looked insane you know <laughs> and uh, there I was with my mullet you know and just kind of like what the fuck I, I, I just couldn't believe what I was soaking in and yeah. uh, it was just so tremendously exciting to me I just you know I, I kind of went all in for a number of years like okay maximum rock and roll getting that at, at the record shop you know going through my, my monthly sort of structured looking through all the record reviews, circling ones that I wanted to buy and that kind of stuff, mail ordering records to this small town in Manitoba and uh, just being so thrilled when packages would arrive in the mail and just, it was opening up a, a whole new world. And, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, that was definitely the moment. And then I think it was that summer, there, there was a few other shows that came through, uh, got to see uh, the Doughboys open for government issue oh, at awesome. the same community hall. That must have been really early in Doughboys. That's like first tour, I guess, right? Yeah, it might have been. I'm not sure it was. But, I mean, the energy was just, like, it just sort of blew everything else that I, you know, had been familiar with kind of, like, right out the door, you know? It was <laughs> just, uh, the the live shows were intense. It, it like... Most of the drummers were playing four-piece kits. It wasn't the huge setup. Like, everything seemed manageable, you know? Like, yeah. oh, that I've seen that kit at the, you know, it's just this shitty little thing. I could probably, you know, afford to get one of those myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just seemed uh, like, like anybody could do it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, th I think that's the thing that, that uh, was the major impression on me. It felt like... Uh, the door was open to anybody and participating in that. And uh, that made me listen to music a little more intently. I wanted to figure out how to play and that kind of stuff. And I mean, for a number of years, I would just, uh, <laughs> delivering newspapers, that kind of stuff. I always had my headphones on. I'd go to sleep with uh, Brave New Waves on all night, just trying to soak up music as I was sleeping, you know? And uh, <clears throat> so it wasn't just punk and hardcore. It was like kind of like the broader spectrum of like this new new music thing that was happening. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, a lot of the, uh, the venues, like the, the avenues were very similar. Like uh, I finally moved to Winnipeg in, in 1988 <clears throat> to go to school. And yeah, I... I I guess at that point I wanted to go to check out any band that was from out of town. I just felt like I, I had to be there in case I was going to miss something that I'd regret or whatever. And 
going to the Royal Albert like four or five nights a week and just spending all my time just, you know, wanting to see. And, and at that point, like, it seemed to me that underground independent music, there, there was this tremendous variety to it, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which I think started to change in the, the early 90s a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I was just kind of into everything at, at the time. But, uh, yeah, that, that uh, summer of 85 and then into 86 when that one particular uh, venue was was uh, running in <clears throat> Point Douglas like there uh, we saw Corrosion of Conformity play there awesome. uh, right right as they were releasing Technocracy like the government issue uh, tour was for uh, for the record U okay yeah and uh, <clears throat> like those are some of my favorite albums of all time like uh, I just uh, yeah fell in love with it and um, that sort of set me off who were the local bands, uh, like, other than Beach Mutants that were kind of, like, happening at that point? Um, there was, I think there was a band called the Dub Rifles that played oh, yeah, yeah. Um, at that DOA show. They've got, like, a, I think a single, too. Yeah. Um, and they, like, that was just weird, trippy rock. Yeah. And, and just, it, it like, the, the styles that were sort of present on these bills, it was just all kinds it of different. It wasn't codified in the same way. <clears throat> yeah. It's almost like that post-Nirvana thing where, where then it was like big enough and, and, and mainstream enough and, and mass marketable enough where they were like, okay, it, it, codification kind of started happening really. Yeah. And, you know, I think in those days there was no big carrot on the stick. Like you can do this and make a living at it. You can do this and, you know, be a huge, huge arena rock band. Essentially, it was just... It seemed like there was a differentiation between independent grassroots culture and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And that that independent streak, I think, was uh, empowering for a lot of people, and that that really drew me in. Like, mm-hmm. it's we we can do these things ourselves, you know. And that you know instigated the whole idea for our band and everything. You know, I, there was a few other shows early on that we. We went to a stretch, stretch mark show in Wellington's. Uh, Chris and uh, my old buddy Bruce, you know, we're underage. You're letting us in when we're 15, and we're just kind of sitting there. Whoa, there's a real skinhead at the bar. Wow. And my buddy Bruce is only 13. He's ordering a beer. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? It, like, all the different little taboo yeah. sort of uh, things were just, you know, you're, as a teenage kid, you're just tremendously exciting oh yeah and uh but yeah there's so many bands like in winnipeg and and a really busy calendar with uh with bands touring and winnipeg being the spot mm-hmm. you know um i guess that point, yeah it's like a real like junction for you know all the stuff in minnesota like would soul sound and all those bands come through and were you into that i never i didn't see them there there, there wasn't as much like there was definitely uh I think maybe when the Royal Albert got going, there was a little more uh, uh, Minnesota bands coming up, like Libido Boys, yeah. stuff like that. I remember uh, going to some of their shows, but that was a little bit later on, maybe early 90s at that point. But uh, but definitely, like anybody doing Western dates to get east, mm. you know, that sort of thing. What about the BFGs? I'm sure they came through. <clears throat> yeah, we saw them uh, a really fucking crazy show at uh, 
it was a venue that didn't last for very long. It was uh, it was actually pretty scary. Um, uh, they had this show. It was at a, a point in time. I think it was uh, maybe around 1990, 91, where there was uh, you know white supremacists, skinheads. That whole angle was kind of uh, taking hold mm-hmm. in different places, and Winnipeg. Uh, there was sort of like the uh, the anti-Nazi skinheads, and then these, you know, the white power ones. You know, I mean, a handful mm-hmm. of these people, but uh, they tend to ruin shows and make their presence known. Yeah, that that was essentially it. And I remember BFG showed up, and there was, uh, yeah, the shit really hit the fan at that at that show. It was uh, um, a lot of fisticuffs and. Uh, yeah, it got it got pretty pretty messy in there for a while. Um, I, I might be confusing two shows. There was another one in there where there was a skinhead band that played. I can't remember if if they opened for BFG that night or if it was another night. But uh, I mean, yeah, these white power skinheads essentially completely destroyed the bathroom. It was a a family from Jamaica running this place, and they were just you know like I think a lot of. Uh, uh, bars and clubs, you know, that are struggling. Mm. It, you, you open the door to this kind of, you know, crazy culture and fill the place. And yeah. People are, you know, helping pay the bills, buying drinks and whatnot. And I just couldn't believe it. Like the, uh, you know, going in to take a piss the first time, there was uh, white power symbols in soap on the mirrors. Go in the second time, the mirrors are smashed and, and, uh, I think they smashed up one of the toilets and then I went in the third time the whole place was just completely destroyed like they just ruined it mm-hmm. and, and basically cost the venue and anyway I, I remember uh, Chris Walters actually kicking the shit out of one of those guys at, the, at that uh, that particular show and I was just scared shitless with my back up you know, against the wall just watching all this taking place but yeah it was, it was pretty crazy yeah, the BFGs, from like what I've been told, kind of like seems like beat the Nazis right across Canada. Like it was just like all these Nazi skinheads that they, you know, would like encounter on tour and just like like a, a phalanx, just like on their tours until they all wound up in Victoria. And there was like all this stuff out there too. In the end, so. yeah, it just kind of I guess like it, it was anticipated in in advance mm-hmm. that you know this might be kind of a heady show and it, and it certainly was but uh yeah and i don't know just weird that you know this underground culture has all these different threads and these different sort of uh um sort of political uh i don't know expressions that find their way down to these little uh you know grassroots culture kind of uh, things. It was, it was very bizarre to see how, how that uh, angle kind of played itself out and kind of dried up in a few years. But yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty weird. It's weird in this moment also where you're having like, it almost feels like those type of environments and shows at that stage are being replicated in just mainstream society right now. It's in, very like antagonistic, but in the same way that it was like, it was like back then. It shows with you know dealing with outright, openly fascist people. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It's uh, well interesting, I guess, in the 
the 70s what happened in England mm -hmm. and kind of you know people more or less having to express what side they're on mm -hmm. by what shows they're going to and bands having to pick okay you, you know you're gonna play this or uh, you know the rock against racism stuff and all that and uh, it is it is kind of uh, weird to see things kind of coming around again and uh, Last year, my brother said, hey, have you ever heard of this movie called Green Room? <laughs> and uh, I watched it, and it kind of scared the shit out of me a little yeah. bit. <laughs> it's a little too close to home at times. Yeah. Um, when Chris was on the show, he has this, like, uh, real... His, his punk moment was when he, he went over and you played him MDC for the first time. Do you remember that? Yeah, I, there was a, a guy uh, who grew up a few doors down from me. He was about four years older than I was. He kind of had his punk moment and was over it already and uh, sold me his copy of, of that album. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, like that, that MDC record is so insane. Like just the... The, I don't, the way it opens, everything. Yeah, about just it. the recording yeah. quality and everything. And, and uh, it, it just seemed... Uh, like nothing we'd ever heard, you know? Yeah. And the politics expressed on that record, uh, very, very over the top, you know? It's uh, right in your face. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for all the, the taboo subjects that are sort of thrown around with punk, like I, you know, I like the, you know, the over the top humor, like there, no subject is, you know, left untouched. Um, but with that, it was it was like this really radical political style that uh, <clears throat> that attracted us over time. Getting into the you know the different genres and everything, and that that was something that I that it left a pretty big impre impression on uh, both of us, I guess. And over the years, you know buying maximum rock and roll going to see other bands it was it was those bands that i think really uh got me interested in different literature mm -hmm. the types of stuff that i wanted to do in in when i went to school in winnipeg were largely uh influenced by the dead kennedys uh MDC, Corrosion of Conformity, a lot of those bands, it was, uh, it, it uh, influenced what I ended up doing with the rest of my life more, more than anything else, I guess. You guys were that band for me. <laughs> like, you're oh. the reason I took women's studies in school, and you're the reason, yeah, it was like very much my introduction to, to any sort of dissenting, real dissenting political view and opinion and stuff, and just stuff that made sense to me. You know, that's where I heard about Chomsky for the first time. That's where I heard about all these writers and stuff. Well, yeah, me, me too. It was uh, like it opened the door to that stuff. I, I remember having a home care job in Winnipeg and reading uh, manufacturing, manufacturing Consent, mm -hmm. you know, sort of as I'm, you know, in between calls and just trying to get that into my <laughs> body of knowledge, you know. And, and uh, yeah, I, I mean the underground political sort of flavor like especially with the early years of touring in the early 90s and stuff it was really interesting like we we felt like uh at that point 
like our label contemporaries, it seemed like punk was exploding and all the interesting things about it were kind of being left to the wayside. And we, we felt like uh, being up from Winnipeg, like we're not, we weren't directly connected with the whole California thing. Like we we're sort of at quite a, quite a distance from it, mm -hmm. pre-internet. <clears throat> and I don't know, we, we just kind of, uh, I, th I think it was uh, maybe 95, we had our first book table on, on tour with us. We had uh, AK Press kind of follow, actually we were in the same van together, sharing the same trailer. They had this big bookmobile. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really exciting, you know, yeah. to be pushing a lot of books and, and, and like a crowd that was ripe for it, you know, it was, it went over really, really well. And that, that sort of side of, of, uh, like just trying to be a conduit to, you know, larger radical politics have that, you know, that sort of spread, I think is something that we've always tried to maintain in some way, activist tables, that sort of thing at shows. Yeah, and also I remember also speakers for a while. You, did you just because we always would have? I guess there was like always a mixed fan base, right? You, you can't a band doesn't pick its fans, and and, yeah. stuff, and you have to like you know. Well, and that's that's sort of what we we felt like. Uh, the whole form of music was becoming popularized in in a in a way that. Uh, well, I mean, over the years, every a lot of stuff started sounding exactly the same. You're seeing the the inside of that machine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just replicating things as fast as possible, getting stuff out there in this kind of production schedule that was unimaginable to me. Mm -hmm. You know, what's well, amazing? Fat Records about, office. Well, how much? How many records they were selling? Mm -hmm. It's like funny, like to think back at that time. I had a. It had a bit of a gold rush mentality to it. I think. Yeah. But uh, I think we were seeing that, and also the crowd was changing. It was a lot more, uh, for lack of a better term, jo a jock-style mentality. The whole mosh pit kind of thing, uh, you know, I think people were seeing what was going on on MTV, uh, MTV videos and coming out and just behaving like they're seeing it on TV. And it, uh, Anyway, I think, I think we just felt like, okay, we need to try to preserve a little bit of this radical space at our at our shows and just try to you know we we were kids from a small town you know uh we were politicized by this music over a very very long period you know a number of years where we're figuring out what it what is it essentially about this culture that really means something to us and uh as things exploded it was just kind of like okay we we have to figure out what we are and what we aren't with this. And uh, and also just respecting that, you know, um, that jock style mentality, we had it too. And, you know, we wanted to uh, just kind of keep the door open for anybody regardless of who they were, you know, these formative years, mm -hmm. young people um, gro growing up in the United States of America, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think, I think, Trying to maintain some sense of, of, of that angle of radical politics was always a, a real important uh, angle with with the band that we wanted to keep going. Yeah, I because I, I, I was sorry I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I was like, you guys probably you guys save people too. Like, no, I mean like in a way that 
going to shows, I remember I can't count how many kids like were like, "Oh, this is this is cool. I'm going to read this book, and it's going to change me and, and shift my focus here, or I'm going to be introduced to this concept." You know, and there was just it was such an apolitical time for a lot of those bands, <laughs> and it was just like context stripping going on in in alternative culture, music culture, and you guys were like the one of the few beacons on that level, especially that were was there. You know, so I can certainly say that that was my conduit. Yeah, I you know I th- I think some of the the '80s zine culture too. Like I remember Maximum Rock and Roll. And I would read that thing cover to cover every time it came out. I'd start with the the album reviews, get my <laughs> mail order list together, yeah. And like, even like how far underground a lot of that stuff was. There'd be record distributors that are distributing political pamphlets and mm-hmm. radical literature at the same time. You could, you know, buy anti-fascist buttons along with your you know your record order and that kind of stuff. And and. Like there, there was a little foreign policy section in that that magazine for a while. And yeah, the news too. Yeah, like, and I remember, that. what the fuck is this? Why, why is this in here? I don't get it. And you know, and then eventually over the years, like holy shit, this is really amazing. You know, just yeah, that side of of the culture really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Where, where did the sound for you guys come from? Because that's the thing is, like, I've got the demo tape. I've got like you know, it's there right at the very beginning. What were the influences sonically that were kind of like form, you know, that sound so quickly? Um, There's no other bands like it, and everything's so derivative, I find. Um, well, Chris is a great guitar player, mm-hmm. and he could do all that speed picking pretty early on. And I think that he was able to do that, it kind of opened the door to a lot of the metal influences that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think it's just the amount of Western Canadian bands coming through Winnipeg um, in the 80s, like seeing SNFU quite often. You know, mm-hmm. they were a regular band that came through Winnipeg. Daglo Abortions was a, was a big influence on me. Like even the drumming uh, Jesus Bonehead, uh, yeah, the Fetus, Fetus album. That was the first punk record I ever bought. Okay. And uh, at... Uh, records on wheels and I remember just like that record is just so over the top in so many ways it just it how many taboo subjects are you know a lot <laughs> expressed okay. on that oh my gosh yeah but uh, yeah I remember pulling that out to my friends and, and nobody really knowing what the hell to think of that record <laughs> what but, was it about that record that made you buy it in the store just looking at the back and being like yeah seeing seeing the the uh the album cover, the artwork, and then flipping it over and not understanding how many songs could be on one <laughs> album. <laughs> like, 20 songs. How, how was the hell of this fit? They're all, you know, a minute, minute, half long. And then the song titles were just so outrageously hilarious. I just, okay, I'm, I'm buying this. See mm-hmm. what this is about. And, uh, yeah, and I, I mean, that government issue show, um, back, back then you'd see a band and I'd want to get every album that they have or try to hear all of them and and I don't know there's just such a weird mix of uh, influences I guess like I I tried to listen to everything that I could on the indie side I still liked some commercial music you know like I was a Rush fan I never kind of you know hung up all that stuff so I I think our influences kind of they 
they were still a little bit Maiden Priest and a lot of, uh, you know, the underground stuff that we were hearing. I think there's a reference to Northern Pikes on that liner notes. Yeah. Northern Pikes, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the uh, 80s can rock, too. Would you ever Graves see around. Yeah, yeah. We went and saw them. Uh, I remember seeing them a couple times in Winnipeg. I remember uh, Chris had this K car. And we'd drive downtown to go get our maximum rock and rolls. And, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, I remember a few times actually just kind of singing along to the uh, Northern Pikes and almost figuring out how vocal harmonies worked through our little jaunts oh, to downtown awesome. Winnipeg. I think there's such a, like an underrated band. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of that stuff, like really uh, good rock music, mm-hmm. not not uh, cookie cutter stuff, mm-hmm. that's for sure. And then Grapes of Wrath too, they have they were gentlemen of horror, right? Like that was their Victoria they were like a Victoria hardcore band or had members of at least. Mm. So it's like in, in Northern Pikes had like a an indie record label too. So even like the cool I've always thought the cool mainstream Canadian stuff, most of it you can find like little little threads of punk tied to that. With a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, and I mean, like we were talking about earlier, just the the uh, the variety of indie music. Like the the Royal Albert, they would host, you know, you know, indie rock stuff mm-hmm. on top of the punk and metal and everything else. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't think we were. Uh, it, it was all so new and so fresh. I was excited about anybody coming through. You know, were you guys familiar with? No effects prior to playing that show with them. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, just from Max Rock and Roll, or yeah, and I, just hearing. I, I think <clears throat> had ribbed come out yet by that point. I'm not too sure. But actually, Chris used to do this uh, fanzine in Winnipeg. A very like I shit. I think he'd make like five or six copies, and that'd be about <laughs> it. But. Uh, yeah, he had me do a few record reviews for it, and I actually reviewed S and M Airlines before, like maybe a year before that show. I think I was still living on campus at that time, so that would have been eighty nine, eighty nine or ninety. A thumbs up or a thumbs down? I didn't like it, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I think I gave it a three out of ten. <laughs> I thought it was uh, like I remember there being this big buzz, and I didn't quite get it. Like it just. It wasn't my thing at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of more into at that time, like uh, bands like the Subhumans from the UK. Yeah, like another great band. Like they changed their sound record to record, and the lyrics were always great. Yeah, and they're really, really great. interesting. Yeah, we got to play with uh, Culture Shock a couple months ago in uh, in England, and it was uh, they were fucking awesome. I really liked it. Yeah, we played with the Subhumans maybe two, three years ago. Oh, really? It was awesome they were like the best band on the bill really yeah I'm like and it was like a huge festival too oh cool yeah I've, right. I've never actually seen them play um, but so like and what do you think of the Canadian subhumans because that's the, one of my favorite debates on the show yeah incorrect thoughts what an amazing record okay. I love it yeah, yeah. as always I'm, I'm, I tend to lean Canadian over the, the UK one until we play with the UK one and I'm like oh the UK one I think might have have an edge for me now yeah I got their EPLP at Records on Wheels yeah. and that that uh, I think kind of opened me up to a lot of uh, English punk and hardcore uh, at that point and uh, yeah great band when like when uh, you know um, 
No Effects came and you guys played that show. Um, did he offer you guys that record deal immediately after the type thing, or was it like a reach out, like I'll, I'll hit you guys up later? And if like, were you guys thinking of other labels prior? We weren't thinking anything about <laughs> making a record at all. We were just sort of. The tape was out by this point, though. The first. <clears throat> yeah, we had a few demo tapes, and uh, like I think. Yeah. We, we were thinking, you know, let's just see where this goes. We're just playing local shows pretty much. And uh, my memory of that show is uh, we played the first of two nights with them. Um, Derek Riel, who Chris and I did G7 welcoming committee with, <laughs> he was doing shows at that point uh, as a promoter. Just, you know working out of his parents' home more, you know, it's yeah. just like a suburban kid into uh, sort of straight edge music that I wasn't really fond of. But Was he, there a big uh, scene for that? Like youth crew stuff? Yeah, yeah. A little, a little bit, yeah. But he was putting this NoFX show on and it was actually his brother, Keith. I think Mike was going upstairs to his room and we were playing and he actually said, you guys should check these guys out and convinced him to stick around for a few songs. I think he may have given him a demo tape of ours as well, kind of on the way out that night or at some point in the night anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't really hang out with him or meet them at that show so much. We, we, and uh, he got in touch with us from the demo tape and uh, yeah, just basically offered us uh, a record deal right there. Not a lot, not a record deal, but do you guys want to do a record? Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, it was uh, a pretty big deal, so we uh, we decided to do that. Flew down there, I think, on my spring break that year, and uh, recorded a record in six days. And uh, yeah, and it, yeah, it was just. I mean, at that point. He, he was doing his record label out of the garage. It was mm -hmm. him and Aaron and one one person. Mm -hmm. And we stayed, I think, at over those six nights, we crashed at five different houses. <laughs> Just out camp surf? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was really kind of interesting at that at that point. It was uh, if it wasn't like like you know, let's say you hadn't the, that stuff hadn't happened. What was your like dream label scenario? Was it like fringe or was it like trying to? Jeez, I. Was there any like label that you thought you would have fit in on? I don't really know. Maybe Fringe or something like that. But we were so green at the whole thing. We didn't. Yeah. We didn't. weren't thinking of what would best serve our band or our interests. It was just kind of like, okay, we got an offer. Let's let's do it. Yeah. You know, there's not much picking and choosing. I think we felt like we had to take advantage of the first thing we were offered, more or less. And there was only one offer, so we just went with that, and then. The whole fat thing really exploded, and uh, things really changed after that. When we when we got our first record out, all of a sudden people come come to our shows. We had done a couple of uh, small van tours, ninety one, ninety two, um, you know, playing to bars with zero people in them. Um, uh, Chris told me about Tony Erba. You guys played with Face Value, I guess, one day. Yeah, that was the show where nobody came. <laughs> And all the bands convinced each other, okay, we're playing for ourselves, let's do it. And I remember just thinking, what the hell? This is so fucking pointless. 
and uh, everybody's cheering each other on like okay we're not gonna take a crowd of zero people we'll, we'll just play for the fun of it <laughs> it's just okay and this one inebriated person came in off the street wandered into the bar and was looking around and like okay nobody's here and started heckling the shit out of the pants <laughs> That was the best part of the night. And then not getting paid anything and the old hippie owner of the place uh, giving us a couple of bottles of his homemade wine as payment. And I remember just not trusting the guy to the point where I just left him by the garbage bin for somebody else. I didn't even want to I didn't even want to crack worth it, it over. Not worth the chance. Like, yeah. Did you uh, who else do you remember playing on those early tours or like what other bands kind of like jumped out to you? Oh, it's so long ago. I guess like the big notable one is that we opened for Jawbreaker at a veterans hall in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. Were you a fan of theirs, kind of before? I didn't really know them. You that know? Went on, like what, that's an early tour for them too. I bet. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was the place was packed. I, there was hundreds, hundreds of people. There. Okay. And. Uh, yeah, they were, I remember being, you know, they were good. Yeah. I liked it. They seemed like really nice people and stuff. I remember playing catch with uh, Adam, the drummer. Yeah. He was a bit of a baseball guy, and he was throwing curveballs and <laughs> knuckleballs at me. And, and then I had to go, I missed one of his knuckleballs and had to go into this bush by this park parking lot we were playing catch in and got fucking poison ivy on my feet that took until the end of the tour to dry up it was awful oh you gotta play every night and get your feet soaking yeah too yeah yeah oh, brutal webbed toes oh. so where did you um when when that kind of like when to you do you remember that fat record thing hitting when do you remember like a point where you're like oh this is something really big right now with this label Well, when we started touring How to Clean, it was it was obvious how our crowd was instantly changed. Like, people were actually coming to the shows. Just, they did such a crazy job marketing that label and with those free compilations mm -hmm. that they were passing out at no effect shows and all that kind of stuff. We, we started getting a lot of people coming just on the basis of that, I think. And we also, quite early on, after uh, <clears throat> How to Clean came out, we actually supported No Effects in, in Europe for three weeks on a bus tour. And that Did you just, guys shared a bus? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, like that was, uh, I, I don't, yeah, I, I was 23 at the time. Yeah. It just seemed like, like this is just, everything's happening pretty quick. I'd never... You know, I didn't even know buses existed for touring. I just thought it was all fans. <laughs> but so I think I think that experience too, just realizing how huge they were in Western Europe, mm -hmm. and they're doing these pretty big club shows, and we're just sort of tagging along like nobody really knew us, but we had a record out on the No Effects guys label, and a lot of people. Yeah, it, it started really, really. Like exploding from there. Touring as a DIY band, it's easy to tap into kind of that punk network uh, where you know there's vegan food every night type thing. Were you guys you guys were vegetarian by that were vegan by this point, obviously. On how to clean, were you vegan? No, that was for me a little bit later. I experimented with vegetarian stuff in the late eighties, early nineties, and then 
kind of went back and forth on it and slowly, I think it was the year or two after How to Clean, okay. right before Last Talk. Were you like, on those early tours though, like how were you guys like, did you feel out of connect to that DIY community when you're on those big bus tours with no effects? Like how easy is it to tap into like... I don't think we'd had enough experience to really understand what was what. Okay. And we did that one bus tour and then, it, I don't know, we weren't on another one for probably, <laughs> I don't know, 12, 15 years yeah. after that, something like that. But uh, Did that change the way you guys wanted to tour? Because I remember when, they, when you finally made it to this area, it was like van tour, uh, small towns. Like you hit every town in southern Ontario. Like it was like a crazy tour. Was that like kind of like a, a reaction to that early exposure to touring? Um, I, well, I don't think we felt like we had it within us to get to that level. Like it, that, you know, the expenses and that kind of way out of our reach. But you were still doing like in Toronto, like you did two nights at the Elma Combo, two <laughs> Johnny Sizzle, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like oh, I think this, and then uh, Maryland's Vitamins played, yeah, Braid played. And Jersey played one show. There were like two very different types of shows, and like you're playing like all these other towns. Like surely, like you could have done a bus if you had wanted to, right? Or like just a one big show in Toronto, or no? I, I don't think that even entered into your, the your mental thoughts. equation for us. Yeah, it was just we were a van band. Yeah, those years. Yeah, because those that that was like that that tour around here. I think was such a like a sea change. And I remember like so many people going to those shows, all starting bands afterwards, or, you know, it was like a real moment of that. Did it feel like that in every city you were hitting that were like, you know, there, cause there's such like anticipation for it. I can't remember anticipating a band coming here as much, you know, and, and, and it wasn't just me. It was like everyone here. It was like this sort of like, was it like that in all the, all the places you guys were hitting? I don't know. I, I can't say that it was. I, I just remember, <clears throat> in general, like there's a few moments where they just stand out in my mind for whatever reason, I don't know why, but the crashing on people's couches night after night, like I, I remember we did, I, th like, I think it was the longest tour we did was maybe five weeks. We tried to have, I think, 33 shows in 35 days. And I think that we only stayed on in hotels maybe twice that that whole tour, but that that's what we did. And then mm -hmm. it, it turned into like like the weirdos and freaks of the punk scene where you're crashing on their places to more like nice suburban homes where kids have a lot of access to a lot of money yeah. and really nice band gear. And I, I think I think at that point I just noticed a general shift of. Uh, how much more mainstream things were becoming, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like like seeing new bands showing up with their parents buying them stuff for their for Christmas or whatever, and it's like, holy fuck, that gear is way better than anything we'll ever have, <laughs> you know, at the time. Thinking that. And it just yeah, it just seemed to I mean, MTV, Nirvana, Green Day and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. sort of blew it open. And uh just noticing that that general shift, the homogenization of the cultures, it was. Uh, I'll never take away like like if people, 
you know, got into punk by seeing some 41 or, or a band like that or something like that, you know, I'll never, I'll never diss that. Yeah. But it, it's, uh, I, I remember seeing this VH1 thing where they were interviewed and they were talking about the Warp Tour and how that was their moment. And it just seemed like, okay, now this, uh, the corporate music tentacles have kind of come down and exerting their influence and co-opting the, the punk scene. It, it, that, that's what uh, sort of stood out to me a lot in mid to late 90s was just how powerful that, uh, you know, those moneyed interests coming down to something that they previously, uh, I think, strategically ignored for so long. Yeah. And then it, it got so popular that they had to essentially get their hands on it and make it into something that they could profit profit off of. And uh, I mean, it's funny, like so many of those old, old records, like government issue, early records recorded in a day or recorded, you know, while some intern at a studio has the midnight till 8 a.m. or something open and get a band and record this record. They sound so crazy and just the the sound quality is so crappy mm-hmm. but so authentic at the same time. And then <clears throat> years later, you're trying to re- recreate these raw sounds in the studio, spending three weeks, you know, <laughs> time, you know. And trying to dial in that on the computer to get that yeah. like, distorted amp just right. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of absurd in a, in a way, but uh, but whatever, you know, there's... Uh, it, it's crazy to think of who all the bands you play with on that Southern Ontario run. Obviously, I'm obsessed with it because that was the one that I saw you on, but, like, you know, it's like you played with the band that would go on to become Sum 41 and Closet Monster in uh, Oshawa. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. played with Left for Dead, infamously in London, that band that had the uh, the beef with you guys on stage, where you guys were, uh, it was you guys, and actually the band that became the Constantine, Shoulder played. So it went Left for Dead, Shoulder, and then you guys, and Left for Dead was heckling you guys um, in throughout the set, and then you guys went, went on and heckled them back. And stuff like that, but it was like it's they would go on to become cursed and like swarm and like all this other stuff. And then in Toronto, you play with Grade, mm-hmm. and it's just like amazing to think of like all the bands that were kind of like drawn to what you guys were doing, and then just like you know responded to it or, or did something afterwards. Mm-hmm. It was like such a, a cool moment in music. Yeah, yeah. I think well, those earlier days, I think were certainly arguably more interesting. Yeah, like I don't, I'm like I don't know. This show moves very slowly, and so I eventually do want to get to the modern day and stuff like that. But uh, I don't want to take your entire day off up right now. But uh, Jordan, I, I really want to thank you for doing this today. Oh well, thanks a ton. And uh, hopefully, we can do a part two one day. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm usually around. Thank you, George, for coming on the show. So you can hear right there. We're going to have to have to do a part two. Uh, I didn't want to take his whole day off away from him, so I didn't get to everything I wanted to talk to, but but that's what part twos are for, you know? And I'm going to have Chris back on soon for a part two. We've, we've been talking about it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, speaking of part twos, next week on the show, we have a very special, amazing part. Well, I guess it's more like a part three. But uh, I don't want to spoil it yet. I'm going to let that 
speak for itself when it shows up in your inbox next week. Uh, we're probably going to do a footnotes, so check out footnotes, and hopefully we'll be able to reveal it on footnotes. I just haven't recorded it yet, so I don't want to you know brag about it when it's not recorded yet. But anyway, that is next week on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, you can go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this. Thank you, everyone, uh, at Vans for making this possible. Thank you, all of you, for putting up with the lateness of this thing. Thank you very much to Tristan Abraham. I love you. I will see you all next week. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>